Hello, true crime lovers. The final imprint, true crime tapes, team consists of me, Jack of all trades, and one writer. We wish we could give you more frequent episodes, but currently we both juggle many things and this project that is driven by our passion. That is why we appreciate all the feedbacks, likes, reviews, and comments you leave for us to make this show even better. We truly hear you, and although we might not be able to respond to all the messages, we listen to you with the aim to improve with every show. Thank you so much to everyone in the true crime community for the tremendous support you have shown us. If you love this show, please share it with one person. That truly does help us more than anything else. But a listener's note before we begin. The following tape contains adult themes, abuse, and acts of violence. It won't be suitable for all listeners. When we reviewed the case of John Bowman, it seemed to be just another case with a few twists and little information. But as we read and reread the handful of facts presented to us, it became clear that this was not just about a man and what he did, but a million other John Bowmans and the crimes they commit against their intimate partners every single day. The subject matter we are going to discuss definitely comes with a trigger warning. From the moment we had our usual powwow about the case, we realized the topic is one we are both, to some extent or another, very familiar with. If you find yourself in some kind of crisis after this episode, or if you feel the need to talk to someone, please follow the links left in the show notes. Also, please note that all the theories and opinions are those of Final Imprint, True Crime Tapes. We are not professionals. Our passion about this episode comes from experience, and although we do not have formal education in this field, we are intimately familiar with the subject and have done extensive research and reading on the matter. For me, being a child at age 9, seeing my mother being dragged by her hair, by her husband, and then being beaten because he's incapable of taking responsibility for the affairs he's had, leaves a lasting impression on a child's mind. It did for me. And from then on, I realized I must do everything I can to get her out of this situation. But not everyone has that chance. From the sparse documented data we can gather, nothing eventful indicated John Bowman would leave his footprint on the world in the manner he chose to. His father Bill was a blue-collar railway man, no doubt just a middle-class man in Illinois during the Second World War, trying to take care of his family. His mother Lisa, was orphaned at a young age, and apart from the fact that she lost her firstborn son at birth, not much was known about her, except that she was a bookkeeper. John Earl Bowman was born on October 4, 1943, in Orland Park, Illinois, and was the only surviving son the couple had. Whether he was just an incredibly skilled psychopath who could hide his true nature, or if his childhood was just that of an average and ordinary child living in Chicago, we will never know. His known history reveals a bland existence and childhood. Personally, I don't agree with the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis given to John after the fact, because a psychopath is born into that predisposition where a sociopath is an individual with strong narcissistic personality characteristics. None of the defining traits of a psychopathic behavior that we know now are related to the early signs of antisocial personality disorder. Since a psychopath is born this way, 
The signs of his or her nature are evident early. I do not have to look far to justify my theory about him being a psychopath. Hardly out of his school desk, he volunteered for two tours in Vietnam as a Marine infantryman. The move from the streets of Chicago to the jungle and rice paddies of Asia must bring a mind shift challenge for any teen or young adult. After viewing several documentaries about the Vietnam War, I'm convinced that even the most hardened soldier who saw action would have experienced a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, or at least some of the effects of shell shock. It was one of the ugliest wars ever, and every day was a fight for survival. No healthy mind, let alone one with a predisposition to mental illness, would be able to endure and be untainted by the death and devastation the Vietnam War left in its wake. Welcome to Tape 5, Predisposition. also described to have a rather high-pitched voice, which no doubt also made him a target of ridicule. He married his first wife, Trudy, on July 17, 1964, and together they would have three daughters. Bowman was dismissed as a police officer after allegations that he was involved in a gas station robbery, but we can assume none of this was ever revealed to his future employer, since he quickly landed a position at a private security firm. Colleagues would describe him as having a very controlling personality. Perhaps this stemmed from his low self-esteem, or maybe it was just part of his narcissistic personality. Even after leaving the police force, Bowman maintained a close relationship with his best friend, Sergeant Dean Pence. The Bowman and Pence family would spend time together, and Dean and Trudy would eventually engage in an (laughs) illicit affair. On July 26, 1970, The bullet-ridden body of Sergeant Pence was found by a motorist, with no indication of a struggle or that the incident was a robbery. The seven bullet wounds indicated a crime of passion, and as with all murders, the people closest to the victims were first interviewed. After clearing Sergeant Pence's wife, the focus shifted to his best friend, John Bowman. Acting surprised at the news, Bowman denied having any knowledge of the shooting. But his wife, Trudy, did not seem baffled and told the investigating officer that she had recently told Bowman about her affair with the slain officer, and that she had no doubt that her husband was involved. With Bowman next to her, she told investigating officers that her husband had a confession to make. According to witnesses, Bowman admitted to killing Sergeant Pence. But after realizing that there was no physical evidence to connect him with the murder, he recanted his statement and asked for a lawyer. The Will County Grand Jury ruled against his indictment, and the murder of Sergeant Dean Pence would remain unsolved. It's incredibly challenging to try and imagine what their lives must have been like after this incident. Trudy knew what her husband was capable of with his controlling personality, body image issues, and low self-esteem. Life must have been very difficult for her. Trudy had put her faith in the course of justice, but Alice's justice did not prevail. She was the mother of three little girls, all under the age of six. During the 60s and 70s, 
help and support for abused women were not readily available, and domestic violence and intimate partner abuse carries a stigma, even in our modern age. The shame surrounding abuse and abandoning one's marriage was significant 50 years ago. Uxorcide, or the murder of one's wife or intimate female partner, is however the only parameter apart from police statements and hospital reports that we can use to gauge the stats and measure the rate the problem is increasing at. There are different forms of domestic abuse. Physical abuse is the easiest to identify and by far not the worst. Sexual abuse is often prevalent. An infuriating notion that a man cannot rape his wife or girlfriend makes it even more difficult for women to report this crime. The partner committing the abuse will more often than not take all financial power away from the victim. This is not only to exercise full control of the victim, but also to ensure that she never has the financial means to leave, even if she is the breadwinner. Emotional and psychological abuse takes the longest to inflict and subsequently take longer to reverse. The victim's self-esteem is systematically stripped away and they are isolated from their family and loved ones who could help and guide them. There is no public information to indicate that Trudy ever had any physical violence inflicted on her, but I have no doubt the 14 years following Sergeant Dean Pence's murder was not easy in any way. According to Bowman, one day in April 1984, he was cleaning the garage with his wife Trudy, and while looking at some equipment, Trudy fell over a gasoline stove and caught fire. He told police later that she was flaying around panicking and trying to escape the terrifying flames, which resulted in an injury on her neck. The coroner, however, did not agree. He reported that the autopsy revealed that she was strangled and then set alight. It also came to light that Judy had recently asked Bowman for a divorce. He, however, having once gotten away with murder, would continue to claim that it was a tragic accident. And despite the overwhelming evidence, a Cook County judge would acquit Bowman and he was once again released to live his life as a free man. In 1988, Bowman's attorney was convicted in a federal court for paying off bribes and it was revealed that bribes had also been paid to the Cook County Police and that there was irregularities during Trudy's autopsy. Regardless, the case remained closed. Despite the overwhelming physical evidence and the fact that he had taken out a considerable life insurance on his wife, Bowman escaped the hammer of justice again. Valerie Joyce had the effervescence of a freshly popped bottle of expensive French champagne. She still believed in romance and yearned for the butterflies that collect in the pit of your belly when you fall in love. The fact that she served as a representative of the same company for 22 years and was nothing but praised by the colleagues for her positivity is just one more testimony to her stellar character. She loved to dance and with her bubbly personality never had a problem finding a dance partner. It was during Bowman's visit to a singles dance that he would meet this bubbly and energetic middle-aged mother and grandmother. By all accounts, it was love at first sight. Valerie had been disappointed in love and married twice before, but she still felt her destiny was to spend the rest of her life with a romantic partner. They started dating and Bowman told Valerie about the allegations that he had murdered his wife. He explained to her that it had all just been a terrible accident and Valerie who had fallen deeply in love with the man in his dark past, believed him. She told Pam, one of her four children, that Bowman reminded her of a big old teddy bear with his hulky figure and big sad eyes. 
and that she felt a strong urge to take care of the block of a man. Pam was suspicious about Bowman's past, but even after raising her concerns, Valerie would continue to date Bowman, and in February of 1991, the couple were wed. Three hours from Miami lies a magnificent island of Antigua and Barbuda. St. John, the capital of Antigua, looks idyllic with miles of powder white beaches framing an azure sea. That tranquil tropical island will quickly play its magic on you, and from the moment you arrive, you will feel that you are now on an island time. It was to this paradise that Valerie and John Bowman decided to take a short break during the last weekend of May 1995. They arrived on May 25th and were to depart on the 28th. On May 27th, the night before they would leave back to Chicago, Bowman and his wife went out to one of the many tiki bars along the streets of St. John's Pathways. Bowman would later tell police that his wife was more than a little tipsy from all the fruity cocktails she had. According to his statement, he had secretly gone to a gift store and bought a greeting card for his wife, which he intended to give her while they were watching the sunset from a special area on the rooftop of their eight-story hotel they had discovered previously. At about 5 p.m., the couple descended the stairs of St. John's Antiqua Hotel. They passed a witness who would later testify that Valerie did not seem intoxicated at all. Once on top of the roof, Bowman claimed that he gave Valerie the love note he had prepared but that it had slipped out of her hand and while trying to make a grab for it, she stumbled and tripped over the rail to fall almost 100 feet to her death. A coroner would later testify that most of the bones in her body were crushed. Bowman's luck had however run out and he was swiftly arrested for the murder. Valerie's siblings and children believe firmly that Bowman was responsible for their mother and sister's death. He was tried in Antigua before a jury of nine, and despite his pleas that he loved his wife and would never hurt her, the crushing amount of evidence left jurors who hardly deliberated for two hours in no doubt of his guilt. Firstly, the card Bowman claimed he gave to his wife was found in his pocket with the plastic cover still on it. The rail surrounding the roof area was proven too high for someone to accidentally fall over, and the fact that her body was found a distance away from where she should have fallen if it was an accident indicated she was pushed. The most damning evidence, however, came from the fact that Bowman once again ensured his wife's life for a significant amount. The hotel clerk also testified that Bowman booked in advance a room for two, except for the last evening of their stay. He requested a single room. The nail in the defense coffin was a Mr. Jackson who sat on his balcony watching the brilliant Caribbean sunset and by pure serendipity witnessed the murder taking place right across from him. John Earl Bowman, the jury has found you guilty of murder. You will be taken to a lawful place where you will suffer death by hanging. With these words, the judge sealed the fate of Bowman. Amongst the heckles of onlookers, his lawyer vowed that they would appeal but apart from bowing his head slightly when the judgment was read, Bowman showed no other reaction or sign of emotion. Bowman started the appeals process, citing slight mistakes the prosecution made, but by May 2000, the process had run its course, and the court of three judges unanimously declared that the original judgment was fair, and the punishment would remain on record. Finally, Valerie's loved ones could get the closure they needed. The appeals process is often much longer and outdrawn than the original court hearing, 
and the five years the family waited for justice to be served were torture, knowing that this man, who got away with murder twice before, actually might have a chance to walk the streets as a free man again. This is what her daughter Pam Decker had to say. I grieve over what this man has done to our family. The whole thing was just a horror. Unfortunately, Bowman had another exit strategy to leave this mortal coil planned. On May 31st, 2000, days after he had lost his appeal, he was found hanging from a makeshift noose in his cell. I'm not sure if you can classify him as a serial killer. He had a body count of three with cooling periods in between. What I do know is that John Bowman died without being properly punished for any of his crimes he committed by taking the coward's way out. In the beginning, I spoke about oxoricide and women in domestic abusive relationships, but I do not for one moment deny that men can also be victims. The United Nations study on domestic violence estimates that about 15% of men who are murdered are victims of their intimate partners. Compare that to the 53% of women murdered by intimate partners, and you must agree that the overwhelming number of victims justify a look and even a conversation about the surge in homicide. The spike in numbers since the start of COVID-19 pandemic has been highlighted here and there in the newsreels. The global lockdown and restrictions have created a situation in which women at risk of abuse may feel like they no longer have a way out. Here's a look at some of the statistics from around the world. Now, the French government has offered to pay for hotel rooms for domestic violence victims after reports of abuse jumped by 36% since the lockdown began. Two women have been murdered. India saw abuse cases double in the first week of restrictions on movement nationwide. That's according to the National Commission for Women. In Australia, internet searches for domestic violence support networks rose by 75%. The National Domestic Abuse Helpline in the UK has experienced a 25% increase in calls and online requests since the lockdown came in. But it is of concern that, like with everything else we observe via television network and the internet, we are becoming desensitized. If you or someone you know show signs of domestic abuse, look for information and try to find help. If you are listening to this podcast, you have internet access and will easily be able to access information about the signs and symptoms related to domestic violence and what avenues you can take to get out of the situation. The best advice I can give you is to make sure you have enough time to plan an exit. You need somewhere to go money and at least the beginnings of a plan. You cannot do this alone. Swallow your pride and reach out for help. People who steal your joy and make you feel powerless do not love you. If you have children, ask yourself if this is how you would want your kids to learn how to treat other people. My mother did it for her kids because deep down inside, she knew that if she did not take the right steps, it could damage us. In essence, we urge victims to get help, reach out, talk to someone, And remember that the road to recovery from domestic abuse is long and hard, but it is a journey well worth traveling. Once again, thank you so much for the support you all have shown us. Your audience is the reason we put all this energy and effort in every episode. And please remember, if you love this show, Please share it with one person because honestly, that is what helps us grow. So before we head out, I'd like to leave you with our podcast of the week. Erica from Southern Fried True Crime tells tales from the deep south in a husky drawl that gives the show that extra special quality podcast that listeners like us often look for. 
have a listen to a trailer and check it out. Until next time, remember, the worst monsters are real.